the deepest gratitude for your grace, for your mercy, for your love for us, for the provisions that you make for us every single day. We thank you for bringing um, the group that went to Israel safely home in spite of kind of a crazy return trip. We're glad they're all back safely. Father, as we turn our attention now to your word, uh, we call upon you to give us eyes and ears to see and hear clearly what you have for us today. Father, I just pray that you would speak through me, use me as your servant, um, and I pray that you, Lord, would, would receive all the glory, honor, and praise, and that we would learn from your word. We would put it into practice. We would apply what we learn. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In preparation for her first official dressage or English horseback riding competition at age 14, my daughter Mariah competed in several training shows. And a training show is kind of like a dress rehearsal. In those shows, Mariah made plenty of mistakes, which her teacher made no bones about pointing out to her. She was very direct. But what I really appreciated about that teacher was that she pointed out Mariah's mistakes with this outlook clearly in view. Sometimes it was spoken, sometimes it was unspoken, but it was always there. Mariah, don't dwell on your mistakes. Learn from them. And as a result, you'll do better next time. Now, Mariah sometimes felt bad about hearing about her mistakes, but in the end, she embraced those words of wisdom, and as a result, she got first place in her division at the dressage competition later that year. But more importantly, Mariah learned an invaluable life lesson. She learned how important it is that her attitude be influenced by a healthy view of both the past, especially the mistakes that she made in the past, and of the future, specifically what she should expect regarding the future. And you know, that's the very same lesson the Apostle Paul wanted the church in Philippi to learn with respect to the process of sanctification or of growing in holiness or Christ-likeness, and that's what we're going to consider together this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn in that Bible to Philippians chapter 3 and find verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will put one in that hand. And as you're looking up the passage, I'm just going to give you a little bit of context. The passage that we're going to look at today is a continuation of Paul's thought in the first 11 verses of chapter 3, and this is what we looked at last week, where he taught that putting any amount of confidence whatsoever for one's salvation, or even for a small part of that salvation, was not only futile, it actually served as a barrier to truly knowing Christ. Consequently, Paul wrote this in verse 8, I count everything, and he's referring to everything attached to faith and thus everything that competes with grace alone for salvation. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There, Paul wanted to remove what I referred to last week as the flesh confidence barrier because with it removed, the path is then cleared to know Christ. And as I said last week, knowing Christ is everything. It's everything. Not only is it everything for salvation, 
It is everything for sanctification as well because when we put all of our confidence in Christ, we then become more and more like Christ, more and more conformed to his image, and that is the goal of our sanctification. And that brings us to our passage. You got it? Philippians 3, verse 12. We're going to go through verse 16 this morning. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I did not consider that I, that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, in those verses, Paul provides us with a present orientation or attitude with regard to sanctification that is influenced by both a healthy view of the past as well as a healthy view of the future. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'm going to kind of chart the course for us. I'm going to start out by giving you the core present attitude that Paul provides for us, kind of the the foundation, no-frills version of that attitude. Then I'm going to augment that attitude by bringing out what Paul teaches us regarding our past reality and then our future expectation. And when we're all done, Lord willing... We'll have a full and complete picture of how we are to orientate ourselves to or think about the process of growing in Christ-likeness or growing in holiness. So let's talk, first of all, about the core present attitude, that foundational attitude that Paul expresses here. Regarding the present, Paul gives us two basic things. He gives us, first of all, an assessment of the present. Look at verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. So he's referring here to his sanctification. He's not there yet. In fact, the assessment in that being, we have not yet arrived. We are not yet like Christ. Okay, hold that. Paul secondly gives us an action for the present, and he does that in verse 16. So drop down and look at that verse with me. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The action being we need to live up to where we are in the sanctification process. Now, I just dissected that. I'm going to put it back together. So putting those two pieces back together, Paul's core present attitude is simply this. We have not yet reached perfect Christ-likeness. We simply aren't there yet. That's only half of his, his attitude or his perspective here. He says, but we are also somewhere down the road of righteousness. We've made some progress. Let's act accordingly. Let's act our spiritual age. All right, put that on the back burner. I'll come back to it. So now we have Paul's core present attitude regarding sanctification, the foundational no-frills version. But as I mentioned earlier, his attitude is, is augmented or influenced by his view of past reality as well as his view of future expectation. So what we need to do now is to consider what Paul had to say about the past and what he had to say about the future 
and then explore how each influences that core present attitude. You with me? Especially those who've just gotten back from Israel, because I understand how, how a jet lag works, kind of keeps you in a fog. So I want to make sure you're with me, okay? As for the past, Paul said in a nutshell that we should, as a good New Yorker would say, forget about it, right? You're going to get your chance later on to say that with me. Forget about it. We're to let it go. Look at the last half of, of verse 13. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. And Paul here didn't mean forgetting in the sense of having no recollection of, of somehow emptying our brains of memory. I'm able to do that, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. In fact, he vividly recollected his past in his brag list in verses 4b through 6. We talked about this last week. He even recalled the sordid part of his past. In those verses, he wrote, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. And here's the part he'd want to forget if he was able to empty his, brains of, his brain of memory. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul had a clear recollection of his past. And not only that, he actually used it as an opportunity to teach his readers not to make the same mistakes that he did. So that's clearly not a part of what Paul meant when he said forget about it. When he said forgetting about what is behind, what he did mean comes in two parts or two aspects. The first thing that I think Paul meant when he said forgetting what is behind is forgetting the past from the standpoint of not dwelling on the past. And that's because dwelling on the past tends to produce false guilt about the past, and false guilt tends to be paralyzing and keeps us from being effective for the kingdom of God. Dr. Paul Brand, a Christian surgeon who first discovered that it was the loss of the sensation of pain that made leprosy sufferers susceptible to injuries to their extremities, once told this story. He said, amputees often experience some sensation of a phantom limb. Somewhere locked in their brains, a memory lingers of a non-existent hand or leg. Invisible toes curl. Imaginary hands grasp things. A leg feels so sturdy, a patient may try to stand on it. For a few, the experience includes pain. Doctors watch helplessly for the part of the body screaming for attention does not exist. <clears throat> One such patient was my <clears throat> medical school administrator, Mr. Barwick, who had a serious and painful circulation problem in his leg but refused to allow the recommended amputation. As the pain grew worse, Barwick grew bitter. I hate it, he would mutter about the leg. At last, he relented and told the doctor, I can't stand it anymore. I'm through with that leg. Take it off. Surgery was scheduled immediately. Before the operation, however, Barwick asked the doctor, what do you do with legs after they're removed? Well, we may take a biopsy or explore them a bit, but afterwards we incinerate them, the doctor replied. Barwick proceeded with a bizarre request. I would like you to preserve my leg in a pickling jar. I will install it on my mantel shelf. Then, as I sit in my armchair, I will taunt that leg. Ha! You can't hurt me anymore. Ultimately, he got his wish. 
But the despised leg had the last laugh. Barwick suffered phantom limb pain of the worst degree. The wound healed, but he could feel the torturous pressure of the swelling as the muscles cramped, and he had no prospect of relief. He had hated the leg with such intensity that the pain had unaccountably lodged permanently in his brain. Then Dr. Brandon goes on to make this very apropos, very profound observation. He said, to me, phantom limb pain provides wonderful insight into the phenomenon of false guilt. Christians can be obsessed by the memory of some sin committed years ago. It never leaves them, crippling their ministry, their devotional life, their relationships with others. They live in fear that someone will discover their past. They work overtime trying to prove to God their repentance. They erect barriers against the enveloping, loving grace of God. Unless they experience the truth in 1 John 3, 19 and 20, that God is bigger than our conscience, they become as pitiful as poor Mr. Barwick, shaking his fist in fury at the pickled leg on the mantle. So we're to forget what is behind us. First of all, from the standpoint of not allowing the past to produce false guilt that leaves us paralyzed and ineffective for the kingdom of God. But that's only part of what Paul meant here. The second aspect of forgetting the past that I think he had in mind is this. Forgetting the past from the standpoint of not continuing to live in the past. You know, when my wife shares a concern or frustration with me, my tendency, and I think this is pretty much a universal guy tendency, is to try to fix the problem. And more often than not, my attempt to try to fix the problem is met either verbally or in some other, other way with this particular sentiment. I don't want you to fix the problem. I just want you to fill in the blank, guys. Listen, right. Then I say to myself, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember this from the last time I tried to fix the problem. I think I got it this time. The very next time my wife shares a concern or frustration with me, guess what I do? Try to fix the problem. And my attempt to do so is usually met once again with an, I don't want you to fix the problem, Dan. I just want you to listen. And once again, I say to myself, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember this from the last time I tried to fix the problem, and I think I finally got it. Sadly, I do the same thing yet again when my wife shares a concern or a frustration with me. In fact, I continue to make the same mistake over and over again. What I believe the Apostle Paul would say to me is, this is just to get to my point regarding this aspect or perspective about the past, is forget what is behind. Don't continue to live in the past, Dan. Stop repeating your past mistakes. Get it right. So then, when Paul said forgetting what lies behind, he meant on the one hand, don't dwell on the mistakes that are made in the past, but he also meant don't keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. All right, so with that understanding of Paul's perspective regarding past reality under our belts, it's time to ask this question. How does that influence our present attitude about Christian growth or about spiritual maturity? I believe the answer to that question is that it influences the action component that Paul brought up in verse 16, where he essentially said that we need to live up to where we are in the sanctification process, meaning that Paul's message here, as nuanced by his view of the past, 
is quite simply, don't dwell on your past mistakes. Learn from them. Don't dwell on your past mistakes. Learn from them. Don't fixate on your foul-ups. Don't allow false guilt to derail you in your relationship with Christ. When you mess up, you need to confess and repent, that is, turn away from that sin, and then, this is very important, accept God's forgiveness. He offers it freely. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Accept that. But at the same time, don't continue to relive past mistakes. Learn from them and begin to move beyond them. Live up to where you are. Rise up to meet your present potential in Christ. Because you see, sanctification is a process whereby we'll take two steps forward, and then we're going to take a step back, and then we'll take two more steps forward, and we'll take another step back, and so on. But over the long haul, we can and we should. Don't miss this. If we are Holy Spirit-filled Christians, we can and we should Make forward progress. All right. Now we know how Paul's view of the past influences his present attitude regarding growth and holiness. Let's now consider his view of the future and ask ourselves how that influences it. Paul wrote in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As there were with regard to Paul's view of the past, there are also two aspects of Paul's expectation of the future that I want to highlight here and bring out. Number one, because sanctification is a process that involves successes and failures, growth and a little bit of decline, ups and then downs, sometimes we have to simply push forward, push through the difficulties, the discouraging circumstances that we experience. You know, when times of failure come our way too often, we kind of fold in on ourselves. We kind of implode like a dying star. We come to the conclusion that we're just horrible Christians, so why bother? We just kind of give up. The message in this passage of Scripture is that we need to keep the faith. We need to keep the faith. We need to stand strong and press on toward the goal. Or, as Paul puts it in verse 13, we need to strain forward to what lies ahead. Number two. We need to keep the reward in view. The prize of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's Paul from verse 10. The prize of being fully conformed to and identified with Jesus Christ. It gets no better than that. It really doesn't. Richard Baxter, a 17th century Puritan, had this to say about not keeping this prize in view. It's very profound. He said, It is a most lamentable thing to see how most people spend their time and energy for trifles while God is cast aside. He who is all seems to them as nothing, and that which is nothing seems to them as good as all. It is lamentable indeed knowing that God has set mankind in such a race where heaven or hell is their certain end and that they should sit down and loiter or run after childish toys of the world forgetting the prize they should run for. 
were it but possible for one of us to see this business as the all-seeing God, God does and see what most men and women in the world are interested in and what they're doing every day, it would be the saddest sight imaginable. Oh, how we should marvel at their madness and lament their self-delusion if God had never told them what they were sent in the world to do or what was before them in another world, then there would have been some excuse. But it is his sealed word, and they profess to believe it. So the question at this point is this. How does this view of the future influence Paul's present attitude toward his growing knowledge of Jesus Christ? I believe it does so by modifying the assessment component that Paul brings out in verse 12, where he essentially said, we have not yet arrived. We are not yet perfect. Meaning that Paul's message here, as nuanced by his view of the future, or his expectation of the future, is simply know where you are in your walk with the Lord. Be honest about it, but also expect to improve. In New Yorker terms, you would say, expect to do better, right? Forget about it for the past. Expect to do better for the future. Be realistic, absolutely, but also be positive and optimistic. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, you, my friend, are a child of God. We need to accurately assess where we are in our relationship with Christ, but we need to do so with an optimistic forward look and with an eager anticipation of the prize, that of being fully conformed to his image. Stories told of a little leaguer who, when asked the score of the game by a passerby, responded, there's no one out, the bases are full. They're winning 42 to nothing. The passerby replies, you're getting whipped, aren't you, my friend? Without hesitation, the young ball player retorted, No, sir, our side hasn't been up to bat yet. That is realism mixed with a whole lot of positive optimism. All right, it's time to bring all of the pieces together that I've dissected, and they come up with one final statement regarding Paul's attitude about sanctification or growing in holiness as it's nuanced by his view of the past as well as his view of the future. And here is that statement. As long as we're here on this earth, we will not be perfectly Christ-like. It simply won't happen. That will happen when we're in glory one day. We will continue to make mistakes for the rest of our lives to one degree or another. And as a Christian, we should expect those mistakes to be fewer and fewer as time passes. But here's the important lesson, the important message about those mistakes. We should never allow the mistakes that we make to hold us back, whether via guilt, false guilt that is, or by settling into bad habits. Rather, we need to learn from our mistakes, we need to move past those mistakes, and we need to expect to grow in Christ-likeness in spite of those mistakes, and sometimes even because of those mistakes. And lastly, we need to eagerly and optimistically anticipate the reward that awaits us when we finally enter into God's presence. That's kind of the passage. The question that I ask myself is, what do we do with this? Well, by way of takeaway, 
I need to ask two questions. I need some congregational participation. And don't freak out. I'm not going to embarrass anybody here, okay? It's really quite simple. I just need you to, by show of hands, all right? First question is this. Has anyone here ever made a mistake? Show of hands. You ever disappointed God? <laughs> Daryl's got both arms up. That's okay. I get you, buddy. All right. You can put your hands down. Every single hand in this room should have been up. I, I didn't, you know, survey it that carefully, but it looks like you all played along. That's good. One more question. Does anyone here think he or she will make another mistake, or two, or three, or perhaps 3,000? Boy, do you see how quickly those hands went up? My goodness. Before Christ comes, hands up. Come on, see him. Bring him out there. All right. Thank you. Every single arm should have been up at that point. You can put your arm down now. You've proven my point. We all make mistakes. We've all made mistakes in the past. We'll all make mistakes in the future. Although, I want to be positive and optimistic here, we should make fewer and fewer mistakes as we grow in Christ. But when we do make mistakes, when we blow it and we let that God down again, as I see it, there are three options. I'm going to give you these options, then we'll be done, okay? Option number one, we can say, what mistake? In other words, we can justify our sin, we can ignore the conviction that comes our way as a result of it, we can call it indigestion or something like that, and we can become defensive and argumentative with anyone who tries to call us out on that sin. But here's the important question. What does that do for us with regard to growing in Christ, our, our sanctification? Does that help us grow as Christians? On the contrary, it actually causes us to regress as Christians. So that's out. We don't want to justify our sin. Second option, we can wallow in guilt over our trespass. We can hang our heads and beat ourselves up, lamenting to every single person that we meet about how unworthy we are to be used by God. Put very simply, we can become spiritual whiners. And trust me, nobody likes spiritual whiners. But the more important question here is, what does that do for our Grow our growth in holiness. Does that help us grow as Christians? No. So that leaves us with this third option. See how I set you up there? Third option is we can confess it. When we blow it, we can confess it. That is, call it what it is, repent of it, that is, turn away from it, believe God's promise to forgive us, accept his cleansing and restoration, and move on and do better next time, all with an optimistic eye on the prize that awaits us. Where do you suppose that will take us in the process of sanctification? Will that help us grow as Christians? Yeah, it will. We will live and learn, growing in spite of and because of our mistakes and because of the ongoing experience of receiving God's wonderful grace. Let's pray together. Oh, Father... I think we all needed to hear this message because we all blow it. Father, give us the right attitude, the right frame of mind, the right way to view this process that we're, going, we're all going through. If we have a, a relationship with you through Christ, we're all going through this, these growing pains of becoming more like Christ. When we blow it, we need to forget what is behind us, as Paul said not allow ourselves to dwell on it and become 
paralyzed as a result of dwelling on past mistakes, but also help us to have that forward look, that eager anticipation that because we serve a mighty and faithful God, that we will indeed grow in righteousness. We won't get there. We won't perfectly be there until we stand in glory with you. But we will ultimately become like Christ. And there is nothing that will suit us better than that. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand? Let's let's sing the song together. Then 
So this will be your take home, all right? So regarding the past, we're supposed to forget about it. So on the count of three, I want all of us together to say the New Yorker phrase, forget about it, okay? One, two, three. Forget, forget about, about it. it. Okay, that's the past. Forget about it. Now, regarding the future, expect to do better, right? On the count of three. One, two, three. Expect to do, do better. better. All right. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful week. Thank you.